the, then the thing that really sets me off is, well, once we have a vaccine, then everything will go back, back to, to normal. normal. Yeah. And I say, you mean like the flu vaccine that's 8% effective? Doesn't work. I catch if, the I flu. A, if I had a brake pad manufacturing company for cars and my brake pads were 8% effective, I would be out of business. George Floyd was not taken out because he was black. George Floyd was taken out because he was owed major drug money by Derek Shaver. You're making vaccines that are 8% effective for the flu that you have to change every year, which, by the way, give most people that take them the flu. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me that this new, and they can't sue, you can't sue them for this without going through the VAERS court, which is a joke. And you're going to tell me that once we have a untested, brand new, rushed through vaccine, then everything is going to go back to normal? Good luck with that. I'll tell you what, they're going to test it in Africa like they're doing, kill a bunch of Africans, pay them off $1,000 per person, which is the maximum that they have to spend if they kill somebody. So they already know that because it's way cheaper to kill them there than kill them here. Found out what the Chinese Communist Party, the Red Dragon, is doing to these people and have been doing to these people for the last 20 years in China, sending hundreds and thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghur Muslims, house Christians, and Tibetan Buddhists. Particularly, 95% of um, the victims are Falun Gong practitioners to be state-mandated hospitals, concentration camps, death camps, military facilities, uh, military facilities run by the Chinese military at the behest of the, of the highest-ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party to create a illegal sanctions forced organ harvesting business okay this is the fire scene that took down beatrice oski another case that we broke to the world um devoted chapter in our book ablaze to her amazing fatality her transition from this world to another this happened thanksgiving weekend 1979 in Bolingbrook, Illinois, a suburb, a wealthy suburb southwest of Chicago. We were at this fire scene. We spoke to Mrs. Oski's son. We spoke to the fire marshal and the fire chief in Bolingbrook, both of whom at the time were utterly mystified and bumfuddled by this fire scene. It was initially discovered um, about 12, if memory serves, around 12.25 p.m., um, on Thanksgiving weekend by Mrs. Oski's daughter-in-law, who had stopped by the house to retrieve some items. She looked down. This is a split-level home. When she entered the front door and looked down to the lower level, she thought she saw a chair fire. And if you look at another picture that we did not provide the chosen overview, it, 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 indeed, it looks exactly like a chair fire. She called the fire department. Bollingwood Fire Department arrived minutes later to find a fire scene for which there was no fire to put out. The firefighters approached what they thought was a chair fire. They discovered that in the chair was a human body and the remains, obviously, of Mrs. Mrs. Oski, who, if memory serves, was 51 years of age at the time. She was a known smoker. So, but uh, the skeptics say, well, you know, she dropped a cigarette in her lap and, you know, careless smoking accident, too bad right. for her. Well, once again, there is a, some amount of body tissue left. Obviously, the two lower legs are intact. Um, she was semi-invalidic, as was Dr. Bentley. In this case, Mrs. Oski used a leg brace on her left, left leg. 
there's a fair amount of body tissue left in this case, enough that actually uh, an autopsy could be worked up. Forensics wasn't done on her. And here's something interesting that was found in the, in the forensics workup. There was not a drop of blood left in any part of her remains. Hmm. We're puzzled by that. Almost like an accelerant. Just... Yeah. <laughs> Except no accelerant was found at the fire scene. Yeah. Um, clocks in Mrs. Oski's home had stopped at about 12.15. And initially the, the fire marshal told us, well, this, this happened at 12.15 a.m. She had about 12 hours to consume herself. So, you know, maybe it could be a smoking accident, maybe, but he was still really skeptical of that. And in fact, um, the fire chief, uh, Mr. Dugan, told us it looked like she'd been hit by the afterburner of the jet engine. I mean, he, he had been to structure fires, chemical fires, where the heat he knew was incredibly intense. And yet he thought that in, in Mrs. Oski's house, the fire, the temperatures of the fire must have been even hotter than a, an industrial chemical fire. And yet there was almost no surrounding damage. The fire, again, it's very localized as it was in, in Dr. Bentley's case, as it was in Mary Reeser's case. You can see her telephone cord is, is distended a bit by the heat. Um, there's some very minor heat damage to the credenza next to her chair. Just beyond the credenza was a sofa with a plastic slip cover on it. That did not heat distort at any extent. Um, her stockings are intact, not discolored by heat or flame. Um, and she has an she had a pink af woven afghan nearby that's intact. And we pointed out to the fire marshal and the fire chief in Bolingbroke as we sat down with them and went over a batch of photographs and their recollections and their and their, their their fire records for this event that maybe the fire didn't start at 12.15 a.m. when the clock stopped, but the clock stopped at 12.15 p.m., which meant that her daughter-in-law arrived 10 minutes after this event happened. Right. In support of that supposition is our belief that on the sofa is a copy of the Chicago Tribune, which we believe is from the day that this fire happened which meant that Mrs. Oski had gone outdoors to bring in that daily paper, which would not have happened at 12.15 a.m., would have happened sometime late in the morning, maybe even early afternoon. So we're pretty much convinced that this is a very short duration fire, though we cannot prove that, but probably it happened within a span of 15 minutes. Again, no noxious odor of burned flesh. There is minor very minor heat damage to the ceiling directly above the chair. But the first responders who we interviewed initially all said to us that they have no way to explain this fire scene in terms that they know from their fire service education and fire service training. This fire scene lies outside of what they have been trained to expect when they get the fire call. Man, that's definitely odd. The fact, so I guess would that be like the chair that's, that's behind? Looks like arms sticking out. That would be like the, the yeah. Chair. That's that's the back of the chair. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Good observation. Man, yeah. It looks like she melted down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Oof. Well, let's jump into the next oddity here. Mm -hmm. 
Another case that we discovered, documented thoroughly. In fact, this, this may be the best photographically documented case that fits the definition of spontaneous hu human combustion that has yet occurred. Victim is George Mott in the insert. Ironically, a firefighter in upstate New York, in the little village of Crown Point outside Ticonderoga. He lived in this 800 square foot wood frame structure, again, a tinderbox of an environment. If there would have been any significant fire inside the structure, the entire structure should have burned to the ground. Very combustible environment. Right. We, get, we got tipped off to this case in the spring of 1986. Tony Moret was the county, uh, Essex County fire investigator. He was perplexed. We got together with him and he said, Larry, I've got a mystery. Come on up. I know, I've heard about your research. I think you're going to be interested in this case. Come up and let's see what we can figure out together. Our team went up. We spent between ourselves and Tony about 750 man hours documenting this fire scene. It's astonishing. Uh, George Mott's son, Kendall, had not heard from his dad in about two days. Kendall went out to check on his dad one evening in late March, 1986. And as soon as Kendall walked in the, the front door, he realized that something was amiss. He didn't go further. He called a neighbor who went in and came back and said, Kendall, your dad's died in a fire. Our department arrived again, no fire for them to put out. This is one of the fire photographs that was taken by Tony Moret. He's, he unfortunately was not a great fire photographer. It's a little out of focus. He was, however, a superb fire investigator. We've never met anyone that we will consider outshines Tony as a field fire investigator. Great man, great questions, great inquisitiveness. He tried to figure this one out and he couldn't. When we teach this subject at the college level, here in Harrisburg at the community college, we ask the students every year if they, can if they can identify for us the human body part that is in Dr. Bentley's, I'm sorry, in um, George Mott's bed. They cannot find it. Um, we can't point it out on screen to you, but we'll, we'll try to, I'm sure your, your viewers can't find it either, so here we go. The body part that George left behind, aside from a shrunken head, according to the first responders at the head of the bed, was one half of one leg lying on the B-shape of the mattress. If you look where the B in the mattress is deepest, that's where you're going to find his lower right leg. You can see in that gap between the slightly chinged um, baseboard of the bed and the dip the deepest V in the mattress, uh, slight flesh-colored little things there. Those are his toes. Like I'm right yeah, you're, yeah, you got it right there. You're right on it. Excellent. Good, 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 Paul. That's it. Lower right leg severed just below the kneecap. Everything else in Mr. Mott's bed, or everything in Mr. Mott's body, had burned through the mattress and been reduced to dry calcine powder that burned through the floorboards below the bed and in the crawl space underneath the flooring. Tony Moret 
the Essex County fire investigator shoveled up those ashes, collected the head and the leg. We talked later to the medical examiner for the county and said, you know, is this all you got? He said, yeah, every, everything we got from, from the Mott fire scene that was thought to be his body, aside from his leg, we could put in a shoebox, and we did. Well, you can't put a normal-sized human head in a normal-sized shoebox. It's too big. Right. The box won't close. So that's further testimony to us that what the first responders, Tony Moretz said, was a shrunken head about the size of a grapefruit, he told us, is indeed true. Again, not supposed to happen in any high-heat fire scene. Sweet Aroma was present again. We were at this fire scene, as we said, we stood beside this bed. No fire damage, no heat damage whatsoever to the ceiling above the bed. You're not gonna get a convection plume of heat at this fire scene because there's no evidence, no proof for such. This is an extraordinary complicated and confusing fire scene. We have documented every room in Dr. in um, George Mott's house. There was attendant heat damage also in the house most often affecting um, hydrocarbon type plastics, glass waters had melted off um, walls off their, off their wire holders. In Mr. Mott's kitchen, um, we discovered cookies that looked like they had been baked on a, on a paper plate. Inside his refrigerator, which was, which was operating at the time, uh, first responders found a dish of butter that had melted inside that refrigerator. Also, um, the medical examiner told us that he found a package of hot dogs that looked as though they had been parboiled. So there's some kind of heat energy at Mott's tinderbox of the house doing weird stuff, vaporizing water in the bathtub and the toilet, we believe, uh, leaving a caramel-colored layer of baked-on soot on horizontal surfaces throughout the house. Mr. Mott was a curious individual. Um, in his library collection was a book um, that contained a chapter about, believe it or not, spontaneous human combustion. We have that book. The book cover has been analyzed. And the analysis suggests that there's some kind of a nuclear event that happened here, not an oxidizing type of fire combustion, but something very, very different. That's odd that whatever causes that melting in the fridge of all places, um, I mean, was I mean, was there any kind of documentation of maybe like footsteps leaving any kind of heat or any kind of melting on the floor maybe he was that could explain maybe he was in the kitchen and he ran to the bathroom or ran to the bed <laughs> yeah great great question no no we look for such evidence um and let us go beyond that now because you've triggered some memories of other things george mott did have some respiratory issues he had next to his bed not shown in this photograph but we do have photographs of it he had an oxygen enrichment device standing next to the bed that was connected through a plastic hose to a faceplate that he used to help him breathe when he went to bed at night. 
that oxygen enrichment machine, which would provide additional oxygen, which is supposedly would have created a more intense fire combustion, like they have oxygen for an oxidizing type of fire. The oxygen enrichment machine was running when Dr. Bentley, when, when George Mott's body was discovered. The plastic hose lying on the machine itself, which is literally inches from this fire scene, that plastic hose was intact. It had not been damaged, which suggests like almost no heat. Right. Um, creates really, really significant problems. Um, it's argued that, that George Mott had maybe ignited his garments in an adjoining room, walked in and laid down on the bed, and met his final demise here. We find no evidence of that whatsoever. The BCI, the Bureau of Criminal Investigations in New York, looked into this and decided, oh, this has a really easy explanation. This is an electrical mishap where an electrical arc had shorted out through one of the outlets next behind Mr. Mott's bed, caught the mattress on fire, and, and incinerated the happen-sleeping gentleman. Well, both we and Tony Moret tore apart every outlet in the bedroom. There is no evidence whatsoever of electrical arcing in any of the outlets. George Mott did not smoke. At this time, he had not smoked for years. As a retired firefighter, we were told by people who knew him that he was fiercely concerned about, and one could almost say deathly afraid of fire. He was meticulous in his house regarding anything that might have been a fire hazard. So we rule out based on that evidence, as well as physical, physical examination of property on site, that there was no known identifiable external ignition source that could have caused this fire to ignite within his body. Remember we said earlier, one of the reasons that spontaneous human combustion is dismissed by mainstream fire science and forensic biologists in particular is that there is no known case, they say, in which internal organs of the victim are burned more severely than our outer external body parts. Therefore, the fire has to burn from outside within. Well, in Bentley's case, as we've already demonstrated, and now in the George Mott case, there are no internal organs left. They're disintegrated, they're powder. We do have the external body part in both the cases of Dr. Bentley and George Mott. We have that lower part of the leg. Now we do have an external body part here, but the internal body parts are, are gone. They're disintegrated, they're powder, they're dry powder. You do not find that in a normal, normal fire fatality fire scene. But you do find it in a case like this, which again meets historically the definition and the concept for spontaneous human combustion. It may look like there's a lot of damage done to the, the bed baseboard here. That charring is very shallow. We could punch our fingernail into that and not penetrate to, to the, the tip of the skin of our thumb. There's a very shallow burn damage to that wood. Again, no fire damage overhead, no electrical arcing from the outlets. Hmm. So what caused it? How did it happen? That's definitely, <laughs> that's definitely another question. I mean, 
you mentioned nuclear findings. Did, did that ever amount to anything, or it was just kind of a light, like a light read? The, the, the mathematics and the theorizing are, are very solid, we believe. There's no way at this point to test this in a laboratory. We, we did uh, apply independently another avenue of investigation to theorize how, how these cases might be explained in terms of something that happens at the quantum level. And we applied quantum theory, quantum mechanics to this, and we came up with the postulation for a really, 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 really tiny particle that we've dubbed the pyrotron, wavelength of about 10 to the minus 31 centimeters, which is by a factor of at least 10 smaller than any other particle present known to mainstream physics. Such a particle has a tremendous amount of energy, about 10 to the 27 herbs. When we shared this with some college-level physics, physics instructors, they first poo-pooed this as, nah, nah, that's not possible. And we went through the math with them. They couldn't dispute the math. And said, well, you know, maybe it could be. That's really interesting, Larry. Um, I'll have to think about that more. <laughs> so we, have been, we have been rebuked to no end by the naysayers that we've created this hypothetical, this, well, it is hypothetical, but this bizarre, stupid thing called a pyrotron to explain these cases. It's a theory. We can't prove it. Nobody in science as yet, as yet has the technology to prove the existence of a particle this small. But your body, our body, the bodies of your entire audience, whenever they, they view this, are being targeted by billions of neutrinos. They zip, they're so small, they zip right through the atomic structure in your body. To our knowledge, to science knowledges, knowledge that doesn't produce any particularly hazardous impact. It just zip through, they're so small. Right. Pyrotron's even smaller, but the catch is, it's got a huge amount of energy. Quantum mechanics demands that a particle so small to produce this kind of damage to a body has to have a lot of energy. If that really small pyrotron hits a quark in your body, it's gonna release a tremendous amount of energy instantaneously, enough to vaporize, dehydrate, break down the water, mole water molecules in your body. And that's one theory that we've posited in our book of blades to explain perhaps a reasonable trajectory for understanding better these amazing fire scenes. As we said, we can't prove it, it's a theory, but it's certainly worthy of consideration, we submit. Absolutely. Well, you have to think outside the box for these fires. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's really outside the box. We'll give it to you. But, you know, we're not willing to rule out too much at this point. It's an open mystery. Yeah, I definitely got a lot of out-of-the-box ideas as well. <laughs> it's definitely nothing that you could take to anybody in, with any kind of experience. And, you know, like you mentioned, scientists and such that, kind of poo-poo the idea, and, like, and, like you said. And, so. and when, when you're dealing with firefighters, you know, most, most firefighters aren't into quantum mechanics. So you're really, <laughs> you know, you're, you're asking them to, to stretch their thinking quite considerably. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> I doubt that uh, my friend that I've known all my life pretty much is uh, some kind of quantum scientist on the, on the side, you know, as well. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's definitely... Remind, remind us later, if you want to, Paul, to, to discuss the cartography of combustion. That's a really another interesting theory, but let's, let's go through a couple more cases with yeah. your audience for right now. Let's jump in here. Tell you what, can you go one, one, one ahead of that? Yeah, yeah. 
then we'll come back to that one. Okay. Another case that we take credit for discovering and bringing to the global attention. We sat on this case for many years. It is fully documented in our book of Blaze. People say that, Larry, you're making this stuff up. You have no background in fire science. You don't know what you're looking at. You don't understand fire behavior. Yes, we do. As well as some professional firefighters, we will submit humbly. We are one of only a few, and we may have been the only non-professional firefighter to have been granted access to attend an advanced arson course at the Pennsylvania Fire Academy shortly after we began doing our research. In that class, at the end of the class, the instructor, Buzz Trebold, mentioned that he had just received a set of photographs of a case that some people would say was spontaneous human combustion. Localized fire, lady sitting in a chair, yada, yada, yada. We, 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 we turned to a, a, one of the professional firefighters sitting next to us and said, oh yeah, that's got to be the research case. Let me tell you a little about that while the fire photograph gets circulated through the classroom. Why were we not down? When that photograph got into our hands, we looked at it, which is this photograph, and said, shit, that's not Mary Reeser. That's a case we know nothing about. Yeah. We rushed up at the end of the class to Buzz Trebold and said, you know, different questions. Who, when, where, how, what? He said, I don't know. All I know is that this fire scene happened somewhere in southeastern Pennsylvania. Well, guess what? Southeastern Pennsylvania is Philadelphia and the surrounding suburbs, the most populous area of our, of our home state. Millions of people lived down there. We had no name, we had no date, we had no jurisdiction. We had nothing but this photograph. How do we find it? It took us nine months. We nailed it. We found the fire department, we found the address, we found the name of the victim. This is Helen A. Conway, age 49, when she met her flaming fate in Upper Darby Township outside of Philadelphia in 1964, if memory serves. This is the home. The, the, the insert is her house. She lived on the second floor. Here's the brief story. Sunday morning, November 1964, she asked her granddaughter, Stephanie, to fetch her a pack of cigarettes. The understanding is that Stephanie brought the cigarettes back to her grandmother and then went back downstairs to watch television on a Sunday morning. Very shortly thereafter, a passerby outside the home noticed smoke coming from a second floor window. This person was a neighbor of Mrs. Oski, tried to break into the house, unsuccessful at first. Fire department was called, arrived very quickly to a fire scene. Knowing that the fire was upstairs, they took their equipment upstairs, down the hallway, opened the door. The room was filled with dense black smoke. Could not see anything. They thought Mrs. Conway was in there somewhere. One firefighter went in on his hands and knees with his arm outstretched, probing around, trying to find Mrs. Conway's body. He put it in something he did not know what. When the crew brought in the smoke injectors and the smoke was extricated, he realized that he had just put his hand in the center of Mrs. Conway's ashen body above the point where her two legs were exposed. We were told that it was a long time before that firefighter was willing to go back to another fire scene. Really disturbing. 
facts of the case, clearly, once again, incredible destruction to the body. The two lower legs up to the knees are intact. Deep burn laceration in her upper thighs. This photo does not show it, but from a different angle, um, you can actually see the, the lower end of her jawbone. She has been blown back, pushed back with force that appears to us, breaking down the back of her chair. Paul, if you're really good at this, on her above her right kneecap, you will see a shiny bell-shaped object. Yep, perfect. You're good. <laughs> she was she was invalidic. She used that belt to summon assistance and probably rang that bell a few minutes before this photograph was taken to summon uh, Stephanie to get her a pack of cigarettes. The bell has a wooden handle. The pine handle on that bell would burn at 507 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. The bell handle is intact. On her left wrist, which is burned to the bone, dangles a metal charm bracelet, which would melt at fairly low temperature. It's intact. You can see her telephone is largely intact. I think the plastic would have melted below 700 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, lampshade on, on, um, has, has either been removed or was never there to begin with. There's no evidence that it was burned away. There is evidence of spalling on the wall behind her. Fire experts tell us that that burn pattern tells them that this was an extremely high heat fire if it was an oxidizing combustion. No damage to the ceiling. No odor of burned flesh. No odor at all, the first responders whom we interviewed have told us. Slight charring on the edge of the table to the right of her chair. Is this, is this piece Problem of the chair missing right here? Is this um, burnt right here? Is this missing? Yeah, you can, if you're right where you go up to, just go to the right of the, go to the left of the bell. Yeah, right there. That's the right arm of her chair. Okay. Difficult to see in this photograph, a different angle shows it much better. There is still smoke coming from the upholstery material on the arm of her chair. So it's clear that there was little time elapsed between when this fire actually progressed through her body until the time that the fire crew arrived to find a fire they did not need to put out. Now, Skeptics say that these are slow heat, smoldering fires over a long duration, which they attribute to something they call the human wick effect. If you go online on YouTube, you'll see lots of excerpts from various television programs that we have appeared on talking about spontaneous human combustion. The naysayers always invoke this idea, this concept of the human wick which is basically that the human body becomes an inverted inside-out candle where the clothing of the victim is the wick. It ignites, creates enough heat to start to burn the adipose fatty tissue in the victim's body, i.e. The, the outside of the candle. Doesn't produce a lot of heat, but it does require a whole lot of time because it's a low heat smoldering combustion, they argue, to incinerate a body to this extent. We have two counters to that. First, in Texas, there are a lot of crematorium operators. 
as there are throughout the, the country. Crematorium operation is a business. Crematorium owners provide a service, but they do so also with the expectation of making a fair, reasonable profit. It is a business. They're going to conduct their business in the most economically efficient way possible. Rather than spend $100,000 on all that equipment that we showed you earlier, if the WIC theory works to explain these kinds of fire scenes that we're sharing and describing to you in this program, why would not a crematorium owner, rather than spend $100,000 on equipment, permits, zoning issues, and a lot of fuel oil and natural gas, simply buy a pack of cigarettes and for a couple pennies, light a cigarette, lay it on the, on the cadaver, his customer, so to speak, walk away, have a leisurely lunch, a couple martinis perhaps, come back and find a pile of dry powder that he could scrape into an urn and give to the next of kin. If they could do that, they would be doing that. Yeah. They don't do that because as that fire chief in New Jersey told us who operates a crematorium, as Dr. Krogman told us many years ago when we sat down face to face with him to discuss the research case, and scores of other fire officials and crematorium operators that we've had the privilege to interview over the course of our investigations, they know they can't do that. That's argument one. Here's argument two. Let's go back to the, the previous slide now. In the Conway case, we sat down with Fire Chief Hagerty, the Assistant Fire Marshal, and the fire photographer who later became Fire Marshal for Upper Darby Township, Bob Meslin. We discussed this case with Bob Meslin at great length, both in correspondence and sitting down with him at his kitchen table in Upper Darby. Here's the letter that Bob Meslin wrote to us about the time factor in the Conway case. And this is vitally important because it blows the hell off the proponents of the human wood theory. Said Bob Meslin, the amazing part of the incident, in my opinion, is the time element. The granddaughter at the time is reported to have said that a few minutes before the discovery of the fire, her grandmother had asked her to get her a pack of cigarettes, which she did, going down. He determined that the maximum length of time for Mrs. Conway to have consumed to the extent that she did is 21 minutes, including the time for the photographs. As he said, that leaves a lot to think about. Now, as we sat down with him at his kitchen table with his letter in our hand, we questioned the time element. 21 minutes included the time it took for him to take the photographs. Here's where it gets really, really interesting. Bob Meslin was called, he, he arrived with the first responders. When Chief Haggerty saw what the fire scene was after the smoke had been ejected, he said, Meslin, go back home, get your camera back here and take some pictures. This is important. Meslin left the fire scene, went to his house, got his camera, came back, and took a dozen photographs. We know, the, we know the time when the last photograph was taken. 
crunch the time it took him to photograph, to take the photographs, to let the fire scene get the camera and return. Subtract that from 21 minutes, which includes the time for him to take those photographs. And we were down to 360 seconds from the time that Mrs. Conway was believed to be alive and in good health until the fire department arrived to a fire they did not have to put out. That's six minutes. Nobody, including the most staunchest detractor that we have, says that he can explain this degree of destruction to a human body in six minutes by any known fire source. Never mind the fact that there's no odor of burned flesh, no heat or flame damage above the chair in which Mrs. Conway met her demise. It appears to us in all the photographs that we have in our possession and to our knowledge, we have the only complete extent set of fire photographs of this remarkable fire scene that Bob took. It appears to us from debris pattern that more likely Mrs. Conway simply didn't spontaneously combust she spontaneously exploded, which is just a, a more rapid form of combustion. Whatever happened to her remains in our view and should remain in the view of any honest observer, a mystery to this day. However she met her flaming fate, she took that mystery to her grave. Yeah, I mean, it, it would support you know, the fact that you said that it looked like she was blown back in her chair. So that would, you know, that would definitely insinuate some kind of explosion, of, you know. In, in most of the classic cases, and these are classic cases of spontaneous human combustion, it appears that the origin of the energy and the quote-unquote fire, air quotes here, the fire is in the torso, the lower abdominal area of the body. And whatever that energy is that starts there expands outward and beyond a small radius beyond a human fireball radius of this energy whatever is beyond that radius escapes significant destruction so we have you know in this case from from the kneecaps down um, her legs are intact very minor damage to the the table um, both tables flanking the, the sides of her chair um, but, a, but there's a lot of force here, which we believe pushed her body back and broke down the back of the chair. Similar fire scene we find in, in the Oski case. In Dr. Bentley's case, that force was directed downwards, so his body literally augured its way through his bathroom floor. If, if any of your audience has an alternative explanation, or ideas to refute the mystery and explain these cases, we are eager to hear from them, believe us. On the other hand, if they find these fires as mysterious and baffling as we believe them to be, let us know that too. Yeah, let us know, <laughs> let us know something, because we're, we're all in the same boat. It's, I mean, I, I have no explanation that would be considered anywhere remotely close to the answer you know all of mine are kind of out there nothing to do well, with you know uh, so. one of, yeah one of our one of our major detractors when we discussed this case with him um said well 
there's, 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 there's just got to be something else we don't know about this case. And his implication was that the time factor was wrong. Well, most of the family members had gone to church that morning. So they'd been home, you know, maybe 7, 7.30 in the morning. Um, had Mrs. Conway been smoldering normally upstairs, they would have smelled something suspicious and would have investigated. Um, it's beyond our comprehension that she would have smoldered for 12 hours slowly overnight. Right. Um, every, everything speaks to something very quick and within that six minute time frame. So yes, we'll agree with our detractor that there's something we don't know about this case, but it's not the time element. It's the mechanism and the energy at this fire scene that we don't know about. And therein lies a mystery yet to be solved. When this photograph was handled, handed to um, Dr. Lester Adelson, who was a medical examiner for, for Cuyahoga County, in Ohio, who had written many years earlier an article debunking SHC. He was handed this photograph and we'll never forget his reaction to it. He said, this is a hoax. This photograph is a hoax. It's not real. Ask why, he said, because bodies don't burn this way, quote unquote. Yes, Dr. Adelson, they do burn this way. I was going to say, is there a special way that bodies should be burning all you know this whole time? Is there like a set way that we're not aware of that when you catch on fire, you know, that's how you're supposed to burn? I mean, that's definitely, I got that's definitely a a cop out answer. You know, I just, just didn't want to have to go into it any deeper than that. So, yep. well, well, that's a, yeah. <laughs> that's definitely odd. It's crazy. This, this is an interesting case, and for if there are any any naysayers still still tuned into this, you say, "Well, Larry's full of crap, and he doesn't understand what's going on." And yes, I can replicate this in a reconstructed fire scene. If you can do that, let us know. We've 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 done firework in burn chambers, and man, we can't replicate this. We've tried to to uh, well, we've we've tested the wick theory multiple times, and every effort has met with humorously fascinating failure uh, just doesn't work but this one's really interesting if you can duplicate this in a laboratory have at us man because we want to see it done this this is an etching taken from a photograph that was made in 1888 in Aberdeen Scotland the case was written up in the British Medical Journal by Dr. J. Mackenzie Booth he characterized it as a state of spon what he called spontaneous ignition analogous to spontaneous human combustion. The body of this gentleman, Mr. Albert Minster, identified in the literature only as Mr. A.M., was founded in Hayloft in Aberdeen, Scotland in February of 1888. You can make out the head in the upper right corner, the torso, or you can go down and see his two legs in the, in the left side of the, of the etching. There's some white things on his chest. We think those are shingles, or maybe he was um, covering himself up in newspaper. We're not sure about that. We're still trying to get the photograph. But the interesting thing here is that while the body looks to be intact, it looks kind of like that first photograph that we showed you of a normally burned, severe fourth degree burn injury. The body appears to be intact, but it was discovered lying atop straw that itself had not burned. And most interestingly, when 
the rescuers of Mr. Minster tried to remove the body from the hayloft, the body crumbled to powder in their hands, according to Dr. Booth. Now, we have yet to discover anywhere in the fire service literature or in discussions with any of the hundreds of professional firefighters whom we've interviewed over the decades, a case where a body maintains its structure, its anatomical structure, and yet is totally, completely dehydrated so that when touched, it collapses to an amorphous pile of powder. That's what happened in this case. If one can duplicate this with these conditions in a laboratory in an attempt to debunk spontaneous human combustion, good luck. We want to see the test. We want to see that experiment. It's kind of like um, what I can liken it to when I used to <clears throat> unfortunately smoke for a lot of years. But um, like when we smoke a cigarette and the ash just kind of obviously burns from the hmm. inside. And then at the end of the cigarette, it's like the slightest touch and it just it's just gone into powder and stuff like that. you know that's the metaphor yeah that's kind of what i was thinking of is there don't smoke <laughs> nobody smoke it's a bad habit <laughs> oh yeah that's that one's definitely you know the fact that he was laying on that hay bill and then there was no burn to it you know no fire on it or stuff like that that's yeah serious so, call, call it call it spontaneous ignition call it Spontaneous human combustion, call it sudden human cremation, or call it super hyperthermic carbonization, as we've done in connection with the pyrotron theory. Whatever you want to call it, these cases exist. The photographic evidence and documentation is real. The first responders whom we have interviewed on case after case after case tell us basically the same story. Total human incineration of a very localized nature, suggesting incredible temperatures for which there was no surrounding evidence. Often that sweet wet on its smell, no noxious odor of burned flesh. We keep seeing the same parameters again and again and again, albeit infrequently. So we believe there's a real mystery here, a real combustion conundrum to discuss. Historically, this has been witnessed. What the witnesses report is most often seeing a bright electric blue colored fire or flame originating from within the human body. Um, sometimes we have reports of an argent colored flame, um, more characteristic and blue red flame, which would be indic indicative of the lower heat. But most often the witness accounts talk about this very bright blue colored fire, like you would see at the tip of a lit settling torch. Should provide some clues. We're still trying to ponder out what would be the nature of the energy that would produce that color. And we think the pyrotron, something that causes almost complete dissociation of the water content of the human body um, is a likely avenue to pursue further. In fact, we have a witness case. One of those witness cases comes from a fire brigade commander in London, in Lambert in 1974, um, correction, 67. Uh, uh, Jack Stacy and his crew were called to a fire scene where a derelict was discovered on the ground floor of, a part of, a, of an abandoned building. 
Jack told us that he and his crew saw in the gut of the victim, already deceased, a bright blue-colored jet of fire emanating from his abdomen with force, his words, with force. To extinguish that blaze required, he told us, um, several, the contents of several fire extinguishers. And then they all left scratching their heads. Um, we sat down with Jack Stacy and interviewed him at length about this case. Um, as we said to him, we wished that in hindsight, he and his crew would have let the fire proceed naturally to its natural conclusion to see exactly where the whole body had eventually incinerated the powder um, because Mr. Bailey, the victim, was already deceased. Um, but that didn't happen, so you know we don't know what the end result would have been other than that there was a fire crew and a fire brigade commander in London who was completely bumfuddled. Right, yeah, obviously. <laughs> No, he's, I mean, definitely it's, I'm left with more questions than anything else. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, I, I wish I could be like, oh, I know exactly what it is, but I have no idea. I mean, it's all different cases. It's, it's. Unlike some of our colleagues who um, assert that we're omniscient and should, should know better. Um, we've never claimed omniscience. You know, there is so much in this amazing world that, that needs to be studied and needs to be understood. This is just one small niche area, but um, we, we truly believe that the work that we've done does provide the evidence for a, a serious reconsideration of the effects of fire, and in a broader sense, the effects of energy generally on the human body. Right. <clears throat> now, you mentioned that you actually teach classes on this. Is this like classes at the university or is how does that work for you guys we, we have taught for the last 20 some years um fire science at the harrisburg area community college on a on a guest basis um the, the instructor uh, um, don conkle who used to be the fire chief here in harrisburg um, knows our research um thinks we've got a lot of information that deserves to be examined by by people in the fire service industry and it's been gracious to have us come in every year and, and, and lecture to his class um, and the response has been really intriguing um, sometimes we we have the students some of whom are professional firefighters some are volunteer firefighters some are EMT uh, personnel uh, we've had an insurance adjuster come in um, <laughs> one year and because you know they deal with fire death fire injuries having to pay out claims right. um, Responses is, is, is all, all over the board. Um, sometimes we have a class where we could be talking to a wall. Um, there's, there's no feedback, no questions, no apparent interest at all, uh, versus the other extreme where they come up and want to see more photographs. They, they throw ideas at us. They throw observations, um, as you've made tonight, Paul, some really cogent observations about some of these photographs. I'm looking for details and, and saying, that doesn't make any sense. How could that have happened? Why, did, why is this here? Why is that not there? Why is there no odor of burned flesh and so on? Um, all we can hope is that um, we've touched a chord in some of these students, some of these professional firefighters, that when they go out and perhaps in the course of their further training or in their firefighting careers, come across one of these cases and say, wow, now I know what Larry was talking about back there in 1996, <laughs> and 
I know what to look for and I know who to call and I'm going to get him out here and together we're going to try to figure this one out. Um, that, that sort of happened um, in 2013. We got wind of a case in, in, a, in Oklahoma that seemed to fit the criteria for classic SpawnCom. Uh, we contacted the, the um, county sheriff out there. He said, I know of your work. And frankly, to us, I'm not willing to discount spontaneous human combustion. Come on out. And we met with the fire chief, uh, several fire departments who were involved in that particular case. And we're not going to go into details in that case here, but it does fit all the criteria for plastic, preternatural, or and spontaneous human combustion. Incredibly localized fire scene, um, just as the ones that we shared with you um, earlier this evening. Right. Um, the phenomenon, as we said, is rare. If it happened many, many times a year, um, if some of those 2,500 to 2,000 fire fatalities in America every year fit the fire scenes that we've shared with you, this wouldn't be a mystery. It wouldn't be, at least it wouldn't be so easily denied. But because these cases are so infrequent and because so many of the first responders simply haven't been educated to expect that such a fire scene as what we've shared with you can indeed occur, they're unprepared they're easily um, willing to write it off as, you know, a, a mishap, smoking accident, and, and let the mystery lie with the ashes. Right. We're looking for answers. Yeah, definitely. It's, do they, so is it like, is it just kind of like word of mouth that you guys hear of these things? Or, cause I mean, obviously there's not some kind of centralized location where, you know, fire departments all over the country are inputting this, you know, this stuff, especially if, certain firehouses, you know, don't want to even touch it. So, I mean, is it just kind of, you get reports or you hear of things? Is that how that works? That's pretty much how it works. Yeah. With, with the advent of the internet, it makes things a little easier. Um, we have a network of, of fellow researchers around the world who know of our particular interest in, in this niche phenomenon. So when they hear about an odd fire, um, possibly odd fire in their area, um, they, they kind of alert us to it and then we pursue it from there. Um, We'll go to fire departments and introduce ourselves and our research. Um, if there's any interest at all expressed, we certainly leave our business card with them and say, should you hear of a case in your own jurisdiction or if you go to a fire convention, a fire symposium, and one of your colleagues you hear through the grapevine had a case, you know, pass it back to us and, and we'll follow up on it. The more information we can garner, the more facts and details that we can amass, clearly the easier it's going to be to someday come up with a plausible solution that maybe even can be tested in the laboratory. Right. But we're still pursuing the, the gathering of that information. Um, in our book, we discussed some 120 different theories, none of which at this point can be proven in a laboratory. So it's all speculation at this point, other than the fact, as we will assert again, that these cases do occur they are real. They're not hoaxes. They're not superstition. It's not Larry Arnold mystery mongering something to get himself on your podcast. Right. Nah. We're not big enough anyways. <laughs> but it's, I mean, yeah, it's all, I mean, definitely have extra ears down here now. I mean, I'm, I'm in central Texas. And like I mentioned, I have a buddy of mine is way down South Texas. So um, if we hear anything, we'll definitely shoot something over as well. But. Fantastic. Yeah, so there's that. And I mean, yeah, so I guess we can kind of close out on 
Um, for anybody that's actually wanting to get the book as well, just let them know uh, how they can do that again and um, how they can reach out to you. So you can go to parascience.com and uh, you can go ahead and write to Larry as well. Um, you can find the book as well on Amazon um, if you guys want to do it that way as well. Um, and you guys have like any kind of social media or anything like Facebook or anything where anybody can get a hold of you guys as well? We, we do have Facebook. We're not active on social media as we explained to you earlier, but we do have a Facebook page. So you can probably track us down, Larry Arnold. Um, type in spontaneous human combustion and somewhere along the line, we're going to pop up in a Google search. Right, right. Yeah, you're definitely all over there. Um, yeah, so we'll go ahead and track those links down as well. Um, like I mentioned for everybody, we'll go ahead and link everything down in the show notes as well so that you guys have all those links. Um, but I just wanted to go ahead and say thank you, uh, Mr. Larry Arnold, for your time and definitely sharing all these interesting cases with us. It's like I mentioned before, we're definitely left with a lot more questions than anything else. Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, so we'll definitely be keep, yeah, definitely. We'll definitely be keeping an eye out as well. Um, like I mentioned, and if we hear of anything, we'll go ahead and shoot those cases on over to you guys as well. So you can go ahead and look into them a little deeper. Yeah, can't, cannot ask for more than that. Open-mindedness is, is key to getting this, this mystery and a lot of other Freudian mysteries resolved and, and understood. Uh, we have thoroughly enjoyed this. You, you've been a treasure to work with tonight. Um, we, we hope your, your viewers, um, those who take advantage of your podcast uh, will have found this as fascinating and enjoyable as we've had the pleasure of working with you tonight. Absolutely. We appreciate it. And um, for everybody else out there, really appreciate you guys stopping by. I just want to give a quick shout out. Um, I know we've been picking up new listeners all around the place, all around the world as well. Um, for anybody that's been tracking with us for about the past month or so, we've been picking up a lot of different viewers um, all over the world. So the latest ones that we have here are for everybody that's listening to us in Kuwait. Um, we really appreciate you guys as well. Sweden, Singapore, and Japan. We picked you guys up in the last couple of weeks as well. So we really appreciate you guys stopping in and listening to the podcast as well. Uh, like I mentioned before, if you guys are listening to this episode in particular, you're going to want to go ahead and jump on our YouTube page and check out the images that go along with the cases as well. Um, so yeah, you want to go ahead and take advantage of that as well. For everybody else, um, if you guys are watching this on YouTube, like I mentioned before, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. If you're not already a subscriber, as well as that bell icon. Um, if you're on the go, like I mentioned, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio at Truth Defender Podcast. All our social media will be linked down below for you guys. If you have any questions or comments for myself or our guests, guests or topic recommendations, you can find us at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. We really appreciate you guys stopping in and we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Everybody stay safe out there, stay blessed and stay frosty. 